Good morning. Good to see you all this morning and on this beautiful day, just about November, and we're all in uh, shirts and no jackets, so uh, that's something to be thankful for. Um, our reading for today is from uh, Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Some amazing words by Paul this morning. I'm anxious for Pastor Duncan to unravel this, uh, this scripture. Let's pray. Lord, help us to speak in truth to one another. Allow our hearts to be open this morning to not only hearing your word, but also that it may resonate in our hearts, Lord. Give us ears to hear. So many times we know the right thing to do in our mind, but we don't always act them out in our hearts. Help us to be a people of love and caring for one another. Help us to be the brothers and sisters that you created us to be at North Shore Church and out into the world. Let us never forget that you created us in your own image. And when we sin, may we repent, that we re repent to the person that we sin against and also to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. It's sometimes so hard for us to do that. We ask that you would do that, Lord. Give us grace to do this. Allow us to be a church of unity so that uh, we can love you through the gifts that you have given us to love one another and help us to spend time in one another's lives. Forgive us, Father, when we don't use our time well, when we put ourselves uh, or others before you. Create in us good motives and always give us back for the good, always help us to give back for the good gifts that you give us. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world, Lord. We would be nothing without the saving gift of Jesus, Lord. May we treasure him every day. We pray as we hear the message today that you would, you would open our hearts to receive it, Lord. Please remove any distractions from us and uh, be with us, Lord, as we, as we lift your name up high. Forgive us for the times that uh, we li sometimes listen to the world and that we're being tempted by Satan, God. Allow Satan to be away from this place, Lord. That you would continue to transform us and to be more like Jesus and less like the world. If anyone here today, Lord, doesn't know you as their personal Savior from sin, please breathe life of the Holy Spirit into their lives, even through us, Lord. As a loving, God-centered, gospel-preaching church, we can help others receive this good news, the gift of Christ. We pray today for the lost, redeem them, and allow them, uh, if you would, to turn from their ways, Lord. We pray for our staff at North Shore Church, our elders, and our pastor. 
all of the ministries that are going on here today. And again, we ask that Satan would have no say in this church. We pray against any spiritual attacks. We pray for Pastor Duncan this morning, Lord, that he would deliver your word boldly and that everything he says comes directly from you. Open our ears this morning to hear what you have for us. Again, remove the distractions that hinder us from worshiping you. And Lord, today we pray for people in need from our church family. Um, God, we pray today for um, Chris Gretzinger, who was in a really bad car accident last night. Lord, we, <clears throat> we ask God that you would be with him, uh, that you would give him strength, and that you would help the trauma team that are working with him right now, God, um, to just help him. And um, God, we just, ask, we just ask that you be with him today, Lord, as he needs, he needs prayer right now. Lord, we, we pray today also for Andy as he's uh, getting used to third shift, Lord, and uh, we pray that you give him energy and that you give him more family time, Lord. We pray for Bethany Salzman uh, for her PT and her continued healing, Lord, from her surgery. We pray for Michelle Ross from her hip surgery, God, that you would just continue to be with her as well and help that healing to just continue to go well and to speed up and that her pain would be taken away. We ask for Mel's uh, prayer for Mel's sister, Monica, Lord, for healing from the loss of her husband and the loss of a lot of different property in her vehicle and lots of things, Lord. We thank you for the guardian angels that are watching over her, her in Portland, Lord. Uh, we pr also pray for salvation for Monica. We pray for Brenda, that you would take away the pain from her and the headaches, Lord, and that you would... Um, allow her to receive your comfort and, and your love that only can come from you. Lord, we pray for Donna and Warren's grandchildren that uh, you would supply a place for them to live so that they wouldn't just be roaming from place to place and even sometimes being homeless, Lord. God, just work in, work in their lives to help that. We pray for our different teams, our finance team, and, and the, the countless amount of hours that they, they spent on this new budget, Lord. Uh, we pray that we would be good stewards of what you gave us. We pray for all others in our, our all other brothers and sisters in our church body and, and in our communities that are hurting, Lord. Those who uh, aren't able to be here today, we pray for them, God. We pray for strength. We pray that you lift us up, Lord, until the day that you come back to us. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, Scott. We're still in Ephesians chapter 4, making our way through this glorious letter of Ephesians. In the verses leading up to what Scott just read, Paul has been expounding on the truth that when a person is converted to Christ, he or she is not simply turning over a new leaf. They haven't just undergone some sort of moral reformation. No, to become a Christian is so much more than that. Believers are people who, by God's grace, have put off the old self, this lost, sin-enslaved person that was born into this world. And that old self is dead, and believers have put on a new self. We've been given a completely new identity through the spiritual transformation that Christ has worked into us. The new self comes with a new heart, 
that is filled with new desires and new values and new priorities that reflect the heart of Jesus. The difference between the old self and the new self is as vast as light and darkness, death and light. Paul has revealed that believers have been spiritually removed from the fallen race of Adam and his spiritual authority and have instead been included in a new human race with Jesus Christ as our spiritual head. We saw last week that Paul says in verse 24, which is the verse just before what Scott read, that this new self we've put on is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the image and likeness of God, which is so horribly twisted and obscured in people who don't know Jesus and unbelievers, it's been restored and is gradually being perfected in believers. And the result is seen in lives that are characterized, Paul says, more and more by true righteousness and holiness. Beginning with chapter 4, verse 25, Paul gives the Ephesians several practical admonitions. And those admonitions help us see more clearly what are some of those marks of a life that has been miraculously recreated in Christ Jesus. So these next verses through really chapter 5 verse 2 answer the question like, so what does this life look like? What does this life look like that's been put off? The old self has been put off and the new self has put on. Or what practical changes can be observed in a person whose life is increasingly marked by true righteousness and holiness? That's intensely practical. And that's where Paul is heading today. So let's look at the first three of several marks that he gives of people who are increasingly characterized by true righteousness and holiness. These three marks that we're looking at this morning uh, are we tell the truth, we control our anger, and we do honest work. The first mark of a believer who have been created in Christ for true righteousness and holiness is, as believers, we tell the truth to one another. This is what he says in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. Now, we know that Paul is connecting this section and specifically this verse with what he said earlier because of that linking word that we see so often in Paul, therefore... There's something connecting this phrase, having put away falsehood, with what has just preceded it. That's his point. What he's doing is Paul is connecting, having put away falsehood, he's connecting that to this radical transformation in putting off their unbelieving old self and putting on this new self recreated by Jesus. For Paul implied in putting off the old self is putting away falsehood. A person who has undergone this radical transformation has put away falsehood in how they communicate. So the therefore means that to put off the old self is to put away falsehood. That is, when believers are converted in their new nature, they have put off this propensity to deceive other people. Falsehood is not part of the DNA of the believer. This doesn't mean that we'll never lie. It doesn't mean we're not capable of lying. But it does mean that when we do lie, we are not acting in a way that is consistent with our new nature. 
When we lie, we're acting in ways that are contrary to our new nature. That's his point. The alternative to falsehood, which as believers we've put away, is to let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So it's not just that we put away falsehood and become morally neutral in our communications. No, we also positively put on truth speaking. There's two sides to this coin. Speaking the truth is a huge theme in the Bible. Um, back in 15 and 16 of verse chapter 4, Paul tells the Ephesians, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul implies that when it is employed, truth spoken in love within the body has tremendous power to build up and strengthen the body of Christ. However, from Genesis to Revelation, lying is uniformly condemned in the Bible. The serpent lied to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve lied to themselves, and humanity has been plagued by untruth ever since. Jesus gives one reason why lying is so despicable to God. He's in dialogue with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and he says in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's instructive that Jesus, who, of course, knows Satan better than anybody, calls him the father of lies. He is the source. He is the filthy spiritual septic tank where all lies come from. That means that believers, and again, our native language is truth, because we've put off the old self. Believers, when we lie, we're speaking the devil's native tongue. It is his very nature to lie. His character is a storehouse that is filled with falsehood. Instead of behaving like our Father in heaven who is the truth, when we lie, we're behaving like our former spiritual father, the devil. We're never more like Satan, our old spiritual father, than when we're lying. This can be any form of deception from fudging to the IRS on our tax forms or lying to a boss to cover up our insubordination, but Paul specifically here is concerned about lying to your neighbor, and it's clear that what he means by that is other believers in the church. So he is assuming that the local church is a group of people that are interacting enough and talking to one another at a deep enough level that there is the possibility of lying, which again, many churches who only meet for an hour on a Sunday morning, there's no need to lie, there's no opportunity to lie because nobody really knows one another. But he's talking about the power of the lie within the church. And just as the truth has enormous potential to build up, lying has tremendous potential to tear down the body of Christ. Notice that Paul's motivation for not lying to one another is, for we are all members of one another. Paul does, what Paul does mean in saying that is we're not to lie to one another because we're all members of one another. What does he mean by that? 
That's kind of a strange construction. When Paul uses the term members, and he does use that term fairly frequently in Romans and 1 Corinthians, he's speaking about something unique about the body of Christ. He is implying something very important about the church when you hear that word members, and that is the church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. Really important. It's not just an organization. Paul says in Romans 12:5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There it is again, right? The church is a body with living parts or living members that act in accord with one another, in coordination with one another, because they're connected to one another through their spiritual union in Christ. That means that any local church is essentially, in its essence, fundamentally different than a religious organization. The distinction between an organization and an organism has countless practical implications for the church. Groups like service clubs that are organizations, they don't have living members, hands and feet and eyes and other body parts spiritually connected to one another. The church is unique in that sense. They have people that work together for a common goal, but there's no spiritual connection organically linking them together as a group. The marks of a good organization are things like efficiency and productivity. If it's a business, profitability. How well does it operate? How well does it fulfill its purposes? Now, the church is an organization in the sense that it is organized, and those marks of an organization are not unimportant to the church. But the church is also a living organism. And when you're evaluating an organism, you ask questions like, is this living thing healthy? Does it show signs of life and health? Because it is alive. And marks of health in the church are much like marks of health in any organization. Health in a church is measured by questions like, is it fruit producing? Is it reproducing itself? Are other churches being birthed out of it? Is it maintaining and multiplying life and health? Does this living family resemble its father? Now, because it is an organism, when lying is injected into the organism, it makes it sick, like a virus. Lying and untruth in the body of Christ, especially when it comes from leadership, breeds distrust, and distrust between members of the body is toxic to the health of any organism. John Stott is right when he says, fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on the truth. So if you're not speaking the truth to one another, you can't possibly have fellowship, not close fellowship. And we again see that Paul assumes very close relationships, that those are present in the local church because he says that we are members one of another. As we saw back in chapter 4, verse 3, the church has this profound spiritual unity through the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Members are spiritually connected to one another. And that means that when we lie, we're not just sinning against one another, we're sinning against the whole group because we're all part of the same group. The church is a living organism, and we don't want to make it sick by lying to one another. That's Paul's point. That's his motivation. As we move to verse 26, we see a second mark of believers who have been created in Christ. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The second mark of a believer who's walking in true righteousness and holiness, this is where he's going, is as believers we control our anger. Paul quotes Psalm 4. Do not be angry and do not sin. So he's quoting from the Old Testament here. The verse is difficult, or at least it's a bit of a challenge, because in the original language, the be angry part and the do not sin part, they're both imperatives. They're both commands. And so the question is, is Paul really commanding believers to be angry? Is anger an emotion that God requires of believers? Now, we know that anger in and of itself is not sinful because God gets angry. However, this anger, unlike ours sometimes, his anger is always under control. So is this command to be angry, be angry, or is it simply saying something like, you know, be careful with your anger because it can easily lead to sin? Scholars are on both sides of that question. Some hold that righteous anger is something all believers should feel at times, and so God is commanding anger. And we would agree that there are things that should make us angry, right? When the believers in Iran and believers in North Korea are being persecuted and killed, we should feel angry about that. God is angered by injustice, and certainly injustice perpetrated against his children. But other scholars look at the immediate context, not the grammar or the syntax of the words, at the immediate context. And so they tend to think that in their judgment, the context indicates that Paul is more likely saying something like, anger can easily get from under, out from under your control, so be careful not to sin in your anger. In the end, it doesn't make a lot of difference which way you go, because it is true that there is such a thing as righteous anger, and we should experience that at times, whether that's Paul, what he has in mind here or not. We should all feel anger at things like injustice and violence and destruction that's such a part of our world today. The challenge in evaluating our anger is, what does anger look like when it's not sinful? We've all allowed our anger to become sinful at times. The source of too much of the anger that we experience is when our pride has been wounded in one of a thousand different ways. That's obviously a sinful use of anger because it's rooted in our swollen egos, egos that are so easily bruised and that can induce our anger. So that's illegitimate. But how do we keep our anger, which can be a good thing, from becoming sinful. Well, Paul doesn't give an exhaustive treatment here, but he does do this. He gives one way to make sure our anger doesn't get out of control. He first cites a proverb saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That was a popular proverb in the day. And because it's a proverb, that genre of literature means it's a truism. And so it shouldn't be taken too literally. So if you and your spouse are having an argument and you're both absolutely emotionally exhausted, it's probably better to explicitly agree to talk about the source of your anger in the morning after a good night's sleep rather than persist into the wee hours of the morning. Exhaustion seldom breeds anything productive. Also, if, it's, if you're going to take this with absolute literacy, absolutely literally, what about those people who live in the Arctic in July or the Antarctic in December? 
Okay, if you're going to remain angry until the sun goes down, you're going to be angry for a couple of months. So I don't think that's the point. Paul's point is that one way you can help prevent your anger from becoming sinful and destructive is your anger should not be allowed to fester. That's his point. Anger that is intentionally held on to and artificially fed with anger-stoking thoughts and attitudes, that's always sinful. And that will eat you up. You control your anger at least in part by not hanging on to it. You release it. If you've been sinned against, you promptly forgive the offender and choose not to hold that offense against him or her. Our sinful flesh loves festering anger because our flesh loves to stoke our anger by reminding us just how wretchedly that person treated us. Our flesh will remind us every time we see someone who has hurt us, there she is. That's the one that really did this awful, terrible, horrible thing to me. Our flesh coaxes us to replay over and over again in our minds the event or circumstance that spurred our anger. Our flesh lies to us, saying that I have a right to stay angry in light of what they did to me. So one way we keep our anger from becoming sinful is to kill those fleshly impulses by quickly releasing it. Paul adds an implied warning to this command to not sin in our anger when he says in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. What does he mean there? That almost seems like it's disconnected. Paul literally says, do not give place to the devil. And the NIV, I think, rightly translates it, do not give the devil a foothold. That seems to capture what Paul is saying. If you intentionally, willfully hold on to your anger because it feels right to you for some reason, or it's perversely satisfying to you, Paul is saying you need to understand that you're doing far more than simply not letting your anger die. Anger that you hang on to grows a barb, like a fish hook. And even if later you want to release it because you spent time coaxing it and feeding it, you're hooked. And even if you want to get rid of it, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And when you're enslaved, God can set you free. He's the deliverer. But on the way to deliverance is typically some tears and some grief and some more anger because you need to be set free because you've been ensnared by the enemy. Now, we've all met people who have been held captive to their anger. When certain names are mentioned or events in the past or topics are discussed, they're triggered and they can't help from losing it. If someone or something powerfully triggers instant anger in you, you've been ensnared by the devil. To use a popular expression, you've allowed Satan to live rent-free in your head. And you don't want Satan to be living in your head because he sets up shop there and he starts cranking out lies to further enslave you. Over time, anger that we refuse to release can turn into bitterness. And there's nothing that will kill a believer's joy more quickly than bitterness. Bitterness can turn a joyful person into a critical, cranky, complaining human being. It's no accident that Paul links anger and bitterness four verses later. In verse 40, 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, things like wrath and clamor and malice, those are 
tend to be deeper heart issues than simply losing your temper occasionally. Those things are more established. They're more settled in the heart. Their attitudes, their mindsets, those are more likely the attitudes of someone in whom the devil has a foothold. An area of their soul, they, through their pattern of long-standing disobedience to God, have surrendered to spiritual darkness. And because Satan is the prince of darkness, if you refuse to banish from your lives repeated sins like festering anger and malice, then Satan has a legal right to be there, exerting his influence over us. We have to understand there is a huge difference between, on the one hand, occasional sins that we commit. We're fighting against them. We hate them. We're grieving them. But we commit them. And on the other hand, sins that we know are a problem, but we willfully refuse to repent of. Unrepentant sins that we know are grieving God, but we repeatedly practice because they meet some sort of need in us. Those sins especially give the devil a place because we're intentionally choosing a pattern of sinful rebellion against God's revealed will. And when we intentionally oppose God through things like festering anger we refuse to get away from, we're acting like part of the kingdom of darkness. And when we're living as if we were part of that kingdom, we give Satan a legal right to rule over those sinful footholds, and his rule is always enslaving. I'm not talking about demonic possession or anything like that. But when we give the devil a place, to use Paul's wording, we're giving him access to that place in our soul to exert influence over us. If you have unrepentant sin, be it anger or any other sin that you're intentionally hanging on to, you're playing with fire. And these kind of unchecked, sin-soaked areas of our soul are what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he warns us against it in 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, he's talking to brothers, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. An evil, unbelieving heart is one that looks at God's will for your life and then looks at your unrepentant sin and repeatedly says, I'll take the sin. Because this can happen, the author calls us to exhort one another, to warn and remind one another of the unthinkable consequences of unrepentant sin. And again, the assumption is you have relationships in the body of Christ where that's part of the warp and woof of your conversation. Because sin is deceitful, it will lie to us. It'll try to convince us that remaining in our sin is more satisfying than making that hard break. Sin's deceit tempts us to believe God's not all that bothered by all of that. There's nothing urgent for me to do about this. And the body of Christ is God's gift of grace to us because when we're in relationship with each other and we're working as a spiritual body, that kind of loving rebuke and correction from brothers and sisters is part of what God does to keep us in the faith. Again, we must not forget the context here. Paul is giving all of these commands, and they're rooted, all of it, in our position in Christ and our identity in Christ. The larger point should be in all of this is you should not have sinful anger because that's not who you are. 
the kind of festering anger that's at odds with this new heart that you've received from Jesus Christ. This is not simply an arbitrary prohibition against anger. It's an appeal to not have this festering anger because of the anger-defeating work God has done in your heart through the gospel. This is inconsistent with who you are. And so one of the responses we should have when we find ourselves slipping into things like festering anger, wait a minute, this isn't me. This is completely inconsistent with the new heart that God has given to me. My sinful flesh does take perverse pleasure in that, but I do not have to succumb to its pull. That's not who I am. A third mark of the believer walking in true righteousness and holiness is in verse 28. Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This third mark of a believer who's walking in true righteousness and holiness is, as believers, we do honest work. Now, Paul's talking to the church here, and he says, Let the thief no longer steal which is worded like this is a problem in the church (laughs) because it's worded differently than the other ones. And we may think, I mean, we live in an age where even in tough economic times, if there's something we genuinely need, we have plastic. We have something to do where we can buy something, okay? And so for us who live in that world, we're thinking, he's talking about let the thief no longer steal. He's talking to the church. How is, how's that work? Well, here's how it works. When you live in most of the third world or times of Jesus, most of the people that were in biblical times, Old Testament, New Testament, were day laborers in an agrarian culture. And so they would go out and they would get hired to work in the fields for a day like Jesus' parable. And then at the end of the day, they would get paid one day's labor, which was enough to buy what you needed the next couple of days. And then you would go again. But if you were sick and you didn't work, you didn't eat. And you got four kids and a wife. Okay, I think we understand why the temptation to steal would be a real thing in that environment for believers. That doesn't justify it. But when you're living in that kind of world, it's a little bit easier for us to understand why Paul would, why this would be an issue in this church at Ephesus. The fact that Paul words it again the way he does indicates that that's what's happening. Somebody is in this pattern of sin. But Paul follows the prohibition like he did in verse 25 with a positive admonition. Verse 25, he said, not only put away falsehood, but speak the truth. So both the negative and then the positive. Living like a believer is not simply avoiding the vices. It's performing the virtues. It's not simply staying out of trouble, as if the Christian morality standard is not doing bad things. No, it's not doing the bad things, but also doing the good things. A lot of people refuse to do the bad things that don't have anything to do with the church because they've understood that there are consequences to doing bad things. That's not where Paul is. He said, stop doing the bad things and do the redemptive things that only Christians do. And his verse is simply not, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, that's a far cry from simply saying, you know, don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. Paul is saying, don't use your hands to steal. Do them to work an honest job so that you can have money to give away to people who need it. 
It's not simply to put in an honest day's work so you don't have to steal. No, it's work so that you can glorify God by manifesting the new and the generous heart that he's put in you. Believers work not fundamentally for the purpose of accumulating wealth, but so that God can be glorified as we bless other people with what he's given to us. God has a huge heart for the poor, and his children share his DNA. And so he's honored when we give our extra income to those in need. And he says, this should be one of the motives why you work. So you can have money to give away to people in need. How's that fit? Does that fit us? Is that one of the motives why we work? So we'll have money to give away to bless people, especially to those in need. That's what the inspired word of God says. One way to drive this home practically is to make a practice of keeping in your wallet or your purse a certain amount of cash. Hopefully it's a generous amount, but whatever you can afford. And you keep it there. And you keep it there for one purpose, to give away to somebody who needs it. And so you put it there, and then you pray, God, would you reveal to me? This belongs to you. I'm committed to not using this for me or anything that's going to benefit me. So now you bring someone into my life that needs this. And I, by your grace, will give it to them. And then you wait until God sends somebody in your life that needs the money. And he will. And then you have an opportunity to act like a Christian and to give it away and to do so hilariously because that's the heart that God has given us to do that. It reminds us that the money's not ours and that we should always be sensitive to those who are in genuine financial need. It also honors God because it reveals the generous heart he's given to his children. Okay, those are the first three marks of what holiness looks like in the life of the believer. As we close, I want to go over the one brief point of application. This is the truth that Paul bases all of these admonitions to live holy and righteous and that is to we must root all our holy living in the truth of what God has done for us in the gospel. This is so important. This is what is the distinctively Christian ethic. It's not a distinctive Christian ethic to do good things or to be generous. A lot of people do that that don't have anything to do with the church. The distinctively Christian ethic is doing amazingly good things and rooting it in what God has done for us. That's Christianity because they're all grounded in the saving work of Jesus Christ who's made us new members of this new human race. This is so important because without this connection to the gospel and God's goodness to us, then our attempts at holiness will deteriorate into nothing more than moral rules that we have to follow to keep God off our back. The starting point for all Christian obedience and holiness has to be the gospel. It must be the undergirding truth, as J.D. Greer puts it in his prayer to God, in Christ there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more, and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Do we believe that? That's grace. That's the gospel. That truth of God's goodness and his love for us must be the anchor, the foundation of all our pursuit of holiness. 
A big part of that is seen in God's goodness in making us new creatures with new hearts that beat in sync with the heart of Jesus. When that gospel of truth is real to us, not just that we have it in our heads, but it's getting down into our heart when we truly, genuinely believe that and we root our obedience in it, then not stealing and not lying and not allowing our anger to fester are not things that we avoid because they're wise rules to live by. Again, any unchurched person can follow that motivation. The reason believers no longer refuse to do those things is because it's completely inconsistent with our new nature, with our new spiritual DNA. When we live out of the ground of the gospel, it totally deflates legalism. And if you're a legalist, you're going to err on either the side of self-righteousness, because aren't you better than everybody else, or self-hatred, because you're always failing, and you're not good enough. We live holy lives because by the glorious grace of God, we have been made holy people. And it would be inconsistent with our spiritual DNA to live unholy lives. That's the gospel as it relates to the Christian ethic. That's the gospel as it relates to our sanctification. May God give us the grace to become who we are because of the gospel and increasingly live in true righteousness and holiness for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Christianity is not just some sort of moral code with a very wonderful founder of our religion. Father, thank you that it's living, it's real, it's supernatural, because it's rooted in what you've done for us on the cross. Father, it's very easy for us to fall into a pattern of just being good because we know we're supposed to be that way. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that you would cause us more and more to see ourselves in a way that is consistent with what you've done for us in Jesus, and that we would live holy, righteous lives because that's who you've made us to be. Help us to believe. That's faith. Help us to believe that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.